Okay, welcome everybody to the uh, 133rd session of the Proceedings of the Aristotelian Society. I'm Kasim Kassam, the 103rd President of the Aristotelian Society, and it falls to me today to introduce you to the 104th President, Mari McGinn. But before doing that, I should say that this is a historic moment for the Aristotelian Society, because today's presidential address is the very first one that's going to be available as a podcast. So no pressure, Mari. <laughs> Uh, I, I should add that only the address will be available in that form, not the, not the discussion, just in case any of you would be deterred by that. Um, so, so just to say a word about, about Mari. Um, she's Professor Emeritus at York University, where she taught until 2007. And more recently, she's been Professor of Philosophy at the University of East Anglia. Uh, she's written numerous articles on epistemology and philosophy of mind, but is perhaps best known for her work on Wittgenstein. Her book on the philosophical investigations was published in 97, and a book on the Tractatus in 2007. Uh, the title of her presidential address today is Non-Inferential Knowledge. And so without further ado, let me hand over to Mari. It was a huge honor to be asked to be the 104th president, completely unexpected. And as it's got closer, Increasingly daunting, um, particularly when one contemplates the list of the previous 104, three presidents that have preceded me, and not in, in particular in my case, uh, contemplating the list of extremely distinguished women who have uh, occupied this position before me. Um, so it, it is daunting. Um, I'm looking forward to the year to come when I shall be not in the hot seat, but in the cool seat. But uh, today I have to give the paper. Um, okay, so um, what I'm going to read to you now is uh, an abbreviated version of what appears on the um, website. In investigating non-inferential knowledge, I'm concerned with statements which in appropriate circumstances, for example, in response to um, a relevant inquiry, I'm in a position to make straight off or immediately, not only in the sense that I do not have to engage in reasoning, but in the sense that there is no prior belief from which what I state could be presented as an inference. In the current circumstances, such statements include, this is a desk, it have to be a desk for the moment, um, I'm standing up, I'm reading, I had toast for breakfast, I see a desk, I remember eating toast for breakfast, I intend to eat out tonight, I'm thinking about non-inferential knowledge, I have a slight pain over my left eye, I am seeing a variety of colours. All these statements, as I currently make them, are distinctive, not only because I'm in a position to make them straight off, but also because the question, how do you know, would not normally arise. Not only that, but this question would, in normal circumstances, be odd, in the sense that it is very unclear what I should, or even what I could, say in reply to it. The kind of things that we can say straight off then include observational judgments, statements about my current bodily position, uh, posture, statements about my intentional actions, statements about my immediate past, perceptual statements, memory statements, statements of my intentions for the future, statements of what I'm thinking about, statements about what I'm feeling, and statements about my visual impression. Thus, what we're in a position to, stay, to state immediately, not on the basis of inference, is not restricted to descriptions of what seemed to me to be the case, or of what I'm trying to do, or of what I think I did, or of what I seem to remember, and so on. Many of the things I'm in a position to say straight off either concern things that are objectively the case, or entail that something is objectively the case. One feature that all the statements that I'm in a position to make straight off share is that the beliefs that they express are reliable. So when the statement is of a kind which, in principle, is confirmable by others, it's generally the case that where others are in a position to confirm it, it is confirmed. 
Where the statement I make straight off are not confirmable by others, for example, what I intend to do, it's generally the case that what I say fits in with other things I say and do, and that others take my sincere assertion as a criterion of the truth of what I assert. It's important to note that reliability, accord, and trust generally characterize our ordinary practice in respect of those statements which I'm in a position to make straight off or immediately, and for which the question, how do you know, does not normally arise. The problem that my apparent capacity to state all these kinds of things straight off without any prima facie justification poses is this. What is the nature of my entitlement to make them? How can a judgment that I make straight off be one to which I am entitled? Insofar as the problem of entitlement concerns something which we characterize as non-inferential knowledge, there's a tendency to understand the question as asking what my justification or warrant is for the straight-off statements that I make. If these statements are to count as knowledge claims, which I'm entitled to make, then the sense is they must not merely be true, but I must be justified in making them. Yet the statements I've listed are distinctive in not being grounded in other things which I judge to be the case. So how can my statements meet the requirement that they are ones for which I possess a warrant? <coughs> in this paper, I'll begin by focusing on straight-off observational judgments. And I'll say something brief about the other judgments at the end. Um, but I'm going to focus on observational judgments and on two contrasting approaches to understanding the nature of my entitlement to make them. Although the two approaches are contrasting, they share two commitments. First of all, they are both instances of what might be called a non-reductive form of naturalism, in which normative practices are seen as part of human natural history, and the actions of individuals who are participants in those practices are held to exhibit a kind of intelligibility which can be captured only by means of descriptions which employ normative notions. And secondly, both approaches assume that it belongs to the nature of an entitlement to judge, that the subject who judges is aware of his entitlement. However, while the first approach sets out to provide an account of the nature of the warrant that I have for straight-off observational judgments, the second approach, which I shall defend, sets out to disconnect the source of my entitlement to make these judgments from the question of possession of a justification or warrant for making them. Before I look at these two approaches, I want to make a final comment about reliability. The reliability of the beliefs expressed by the kind of statement I'm in a position to make straight off is one feature that is shared by all the kinds of statements I listed earlier. This is clearly not a contingent feature of them. In respect of statements that we make straight off, a high degree of reliability is a condition of the sounds that I utter having the status of statements at all. Now, no doubt the reliability of the beliefs expressed by means of these kinds of statement depends, at least in part, upon the reliable operations of systems of non-personal processing of which I am completely unaware. I've excluded purely reliabilist accounts of the nature of a speaker's warrant for these kinds of judgment. However, that doesn't mean that a speaker's capacity to make these judgments does not depend essentially on his systems of subpersonal processing being in good working order. There are clearly conditions which underpin the reliability of a speaker's straight-off judgments, which are beyond his ken. It doesn't, of course, follow that the kind of straight-off assertions we are concerned with even implicitly assert that these conditions are met. Okay, so now the first approach to understanding the nature of my entitlement to these straight-off observational judgments, such as this is a desk. The first approach I want to look, out, set, look at sets out to show how the observational judgments I'm in a position to make straight-off have the status of knowledgeable judgments for which I possess 
an indefeasible warrant. The warrant for a judgment which is known non-inferentially, according to this first approach, is not another belief, but an experiential state. This is a view that has been developed in great detail by John McDowell. He claims that straight-off observational judgments can be seen as rational responses to perceptual states, which provide them with an indefeasible warrant, and which a subject enjoys independently of, or prior to, the observational judgments which he makes. McDowell argues that if we accept the Kantian insight that in the case of subjects with the relevant conceptual capacities, the content of experience is conceptually structured, then we're in a position to see observational judgments concerning matters of fact as both warranted and non-inferential. They are warranted by, though they're not inferred from, the experience to which, given its conceptual content, they can be seen as a rational response. Thus, when things go well, and I am perceiving the desk before me, the warrant for the judgment, this is a desk, is provided by the fact that there is a desk before me making itself visually manifest in experience. So McDowell writes, in a non-defective exercise of perceptual capacity, its possessor is self-consciously equipped with an indefeasible warrant for belief about the environment. So on McDowell's account, the circumstances of a fact's making itself manifest to a subject in experience provides the subject both with a reason to judge and the fact, ob and the fact obtains and a guarantee, sorry, with a start again. Um, the circumstances of facts making itself manifest to a subject in experience provides the subject both with a reason to judge that the fact obtains and a guarantee that the judgment is true. So that what is judged amounts to a rationally grounded, justified judgment, which is non-inferentially known to be the case. So McDowell writes, experiences can be such as to exclude any possibility that things are not as they are experienced to be. It's important that in holding that experience provides reasons for judging, McDowell is claiming that the reason for which I judge that this is a desk makes essential reference to the fact that I am seeing it. McDowell explicitly rejects the idea that it's the fact that this is a desk that is my reason for judging it is. For that would mean that in articulating my reason for judging, I would merely restate what I believe, and this could not be regarded as providing a warrant for it. In order to provide a warrant, the reason must show how my belief about how things are is a rational response to the fact that this is a desk, and thus is something which can amount to knowledge. Facts, McDowell argues, exert a rational influence on belief only by being experienced. And thus, if the belief that there is a desk is to amount to knowledge, that there is, then it must be that my reason for holding it essentially alludes to the circumstance that I am seeing it. So he writes in his response to Jonathan Dancy, when one specifies the reason for which someone holds a perceptual belief, one cannot, in my view, omit the person's experience and go straight to the fact experienced. Okay, now I want to... A lot of people have objected to um, McDowell's account, but I want to develop um, a particular um, account, not to his disjunctivism and whether he's, he, he, uh, one can take advantage of the guarantee which experiences allegedly gives one in McDowell's account. Um, but I want to look at his positive account here of non-inferential knowledge. So McDowell is very clear that his account is not intended to show that we're in a, ever in a position to provide a justification for these judgments which would satisfy a determined skeptic. Rather, it's intended merely to serve as a picture by means of which we can be in a position of reflection, which, sorry, from a position of reflection, we can reassure ourselves that when things go well, we are in possession of an indefeasible warrant, provided by the fact that a fact is making itself manifest in experience, 
and are thus in a position to make knowledgeable judgments about or form beliefs which amount to knowledge of the objects and events occurring in our surroundings. The account is meant to show how, even though he cannot prove he knows to a determined skeptic, someone who judges that P, for the reason that the fact that P is making itself manifest in experience, can be in possession of an experiential warrant or justification for his belief, which guarantees what he claims to know, guarantees it as a fact. According to McDowell, this does not require that the subject have an infallible way of telling that he is enjoying such an experiential state. The fact that a subject may, on some occasions, take a case of a mere seeming to see that something is thus and so, as a case of seeing it is thus and so, does not alter the fact that when he sees things are thus and so, and knows that he does, the seeing provides him with an indefeasible warrant for a judgment about how things are. The external element in MacDowell's account means that all he is claiming is that if and when we are in a situation of perceiving our environment, then facts about our experience provide us with reasons to judge, which constitute indefeasible warrants for the judgments we make about how things are. It's this claim that I want to look at more closely. On McDowell's account, it's the state of seeing that this is a desk, which provides me with a warrant for judging that this is a desk. Insofar as facts about experience are my warrant for the judgment that this is a desk, I can articulate my warrant for the latter judgment in the statement, I see that this is a desk. Now, it seems natural to object at this point that this articulation of my warrant for the judgment that this is a desk, I see that this is a desk, incorporates a description of what I see and thus presupposes that I have already settled what is there to be seen. If I'm in a position to state I'm seeing a desk, that, then that means that I have already made the judgment, this is a desk. And so it's hard to see how this could count as providing a warrant for the judgment. I'm not the first to make this complaint about McDowell. I think Barry Stroud and Charles Travis have both made a similar objection. I just want to try again to work it out in more detail. Okay, so it's central to McDowell's account of my warrant for observational judgments, which on his account case account cases of genuine seeing provide, that I see that P is a canonical way to specify my reason for judging that P. He says the canonical justification for a perceptual claim is that one perceives that things are as it claims they are. In order to specify my reason for the judgment that P in a way that succeeds in showing that the judgment is warranted, that is to say knowledgeable, the specification must make it clear that, quote, the state is the appearance it is only because it is a state of having something perceptually present to, me, to one. That is, it must take the form, I see that P. But if, as McDowell appears to accept, my articulation of what he claims is my warrant for the judgment that P presupposes that I have already made the judgment that P, it's difficult to see how it succeeds in providing the latter with an independent warrant. It is, of course, the case that the perception, that perception is a way of coming to know about the world, insofar as it provides opportunities for observational judgments. In suitable circumstances, giving I see that P in response to the question, how do you know that P, is generally a way of indicating how I am in a position to affirm that P. However, this falls short of McDowell's claim that the judgment that P is a response to an experiential state with the same propositional content, which constitutes an indefeasible warrant for it. If I give I see that P as my reason for judging that P, then it seems that what I'm doing is repeating the judgment and at the same time indicating that it's a judgment made on the basis of observation. That is to say that it's an immediate response to the visible world and is not arrived at on the basis of, say, inference or testimony. If my judgment that this is a desk is an immediate response to what is visible, 
before me, then it's an observational judgment, a case of observing that something is so. Although this says something important about the status of my judgment, it does not yet provide it with an independent justification. It doesn't provide an independent warrant for the judgment that this is a desk, insofar as that judgment is already presupposed in my description I give of what appears that doesn't fall short of the observed fact, including the statement that I see that P. It's true that whatever that whenever I make a true observational judgment, such as this is a desk, in response to the visible world, a statement of the form, I see that this is a desk, will be true. But if we ask what my reason is for the response to the visible world that is expressed in the observational judgment itself, then it seems to me that the only reason which properly captures my reason for making it is precisely that it is a desk, that is, that this is a correct description of what is there to be seen. This is not, of course, to provide a warrant for the judgment, for it simply repeats it. However, it can be said to count as giving the reason rather than the mere cause of my judgment, insofar as my response is clearly not a mere reflex, such as blinking in response to a bright light, but one in which I bring my acquired mastery of the relevant observational concepts to bear on the objects and events by which I am confronted. However, my reason for the judgment cannot, without obvious circularity of P, because it's correct to judge that P, or because P, be regarded as my warrant for the judgment. Repeating a judgment is not a way of justifying it. The claim is that McDowell's suggestion that my warrant for the observational judgment, that I see that this is a desk, really does no better in providing a justification for my judgment that this is a desk than the outright repetition of the judgment does. For the claim is, it's on the grounds of my making the observational judgment that this is a desk, that I'm in a position to state that that's what I see. And so the latter cannot be an articulation of my warrant for the former, although it may be an indication to someone else of why I'm in a position to affirm it, that is, of the fact that the judgment is an observational one. The straight-off observational judgments have logical priority in the sense it's by making them that what is there to be seen can become a reason for action or for making further judgments, for example, judgments about what I see. This priority goes against McDowell's attempt, quote, to put experiences in the epistemological position in which Sellers puts reports of observation. So that's really what I'm criticizing McDowell for, this attempt to preserve some form of empiricism in which you put experiences at the bottom of the system of justification rather than observational judgments. Sorry. So I'll just say something more about the logical priority of the observational judgments over judgments of the form I see that P. I think that this priority manifests itself in an asymmetry between reasons for action and reasons for straight-off observational judgments. Suppose I give the fact that P, a state of affairs I am not currently observing, as my reason for phying. It's not, an, it's not enough that I take it to be true that P, and it is true, in order for my phying to be a rational response to the fact that P. It's only if I know that P that my phying constitutes a rational response to the fact that P. The fact that P exerts a rational influence on my action is my reason for acting only insofar it is something that I know to be the case. McDowell argues that something analogous is true in the case of observational judgments, and that this shows why it's absurd to suggest that a mere repetition of the judgment could give my reason for judging. It's only if I'm experiencing the fact that it's a desk that my judging it is a desk constitutes a rational response to the fact that it is. The fact exerts a rational influence over my judgment only insofar as it is something experienced. It's for this reason that in giving my reason for judging that this is a desk, I must allude to the circumstance of a fact's making itself manifest to me, that is, to my seeing that it's a desk. 
However, there's an important asymmetry between the two cases. In the case of an action performed in response to the fact that P, a state of affairs I'm not currently observing, my truly judging that P is clearly not enough for the judgment to count as a case of knowledge. If the judgment is true, but is made on grounds that do not qualify it as knowledge, then an action performed for the reason that P is clearly not a response to the fact that P, which remains beyond my ken. I cannot be motivated to act by a fact that has not come within my ken, and mere true belief is not sufficient for that. In the case of an observational judgment, things are otherwise. For in a perceptual situation, if I judge that this is a desk, and it is one, then that's sufficient to establish that I see that it's a desk. The truth of the observational judgment is in these circumstances a criterion of my seeing that it's a desk. The, the requirements I am experiencing the fact that it's a desk adds nothing to what is already established in these circumstances by the truth of the observational judgment that I make. There's no distinction in this case which parallels the distinction between mere true belief and knowledge in the case for action. In the case of reasons for action. McDowell motivates the claim that there is a symmetry in these, between the two cases um, by appeal to the example of trompe l'oeil pictures. Suppose I'm looking at a trompe l'oeil picture of a violin on a wall, which is in front of an exactly such a violin, and that I make the observational judgment, there is a violin before me. As McDowell observes, the judgment is true, but is not a response to the fact that there's a violin before me since I don't see the violin. It therefore looks as if we need to add the requirement that I'm seeing the violin for my judgment to be a rational response to the fact that there is a violin and thus to qualify as a warranted knowledgeable judgment. Now the example clearly depends upon our taking an, as an exemplar of an observational judgment a general judgment of the form, there is a violin before me. If we take a paradigmatic observational judgment of the form, that is a violin, which is clearly the ground of my believing that there's a violin before me, then said in response to the trompe l'oeil painting, that observational judgment is not true. That is, this is not a case of observing that this is a violin. And this in itself establishes that I'm not seeing that it's a violin, and therefore that I'm not seeing that there's a violin before me. If we recognize the logical priority of the demonstrative observational judgment, then its falsity in the case of the trompe l'oeil picture already establishes that this is not a case of observing that something is so, and thus that the general belief which is based on the observational judgment is not a response to a fact. Adding the true general belief, uh, sorry, adding that the true general belief must be a response to seeing that there's a violin before me adds nothing for what it requires is already covered by the requirement that the demonstrative observational judgment on which the general belief is based be true. So the only reason which properly captures my reason for an observational judgment, say that this is a desk, is that this is a correct description of what is uh, there to be seen, although repeating the judgment is clearly not a way of providing the original judgment with a warrant. So I want to say there's nothing more fundamental in the order of justification than straight-off observational judgments. Now, it might be objected that it is possible to provide an example to which the judgment that P has a demonstrative content and is true, but in which I don't see that P. Imagine, for example, that I'm confronted by a red square, which unknown to me is illuminated by a red light. In this case, my observational judgment, that is a red square, is true, but it's not true that I see that the square is red. For if I were confronted with a white square in the same circumstances, I would still judge that's a red square. So on McDowell's account, the fact that I'm not seeing that the square is red means that my original true judgment is not a response to the fact that the square is red and is thus not warranted or a knowledgeable, is thus not a warranted or knowledgeable judgment. It's only if the fact that it um, is a red square is making itself visually manifest in experience that my judgment is a response to the fact that it is red. And that's why I see that it is red when I am seeing it is the proper articulation of both my reason and my warrant for the judgment. Well, what I want to say about this case 
He's analogous to what McDowell might say about the judgment, this is a barn, made while standing in front of the only real barn in barn facade country. McDowell might argue that this is a case in which there are circumstances obtaining such that if I knew them, I would recognize that I'm not in a position to judge in respect of barns that things are as they appear. So that even when they're appearing the way they do is a matter of the fact that there is a barn making itself manifest in experience, I'm not, given these circumstances, in a position to take advantage of the warrant that experience provides, and thus not in a position knowledgeably to judge that is a barn. Similarly, the above example about the red square describes a case in which there are circumstances obtaining, the light is non-standard, such that if I knew them, I would recognize that I'm not in a position to make observational judgments about the color of objects. I'm not in a position to make, um, which is to say I'm not entitled to make, the true judgment that is red, because the circumstances are such that I'm not in a position to make or not entitled to make any judgment about what color an object is. In general, our mastery of observational concepts include a grasp of the conditions in which we are entitled to make straight-off judgments involving them. Which circumstances count as standard for a given observational concept is something that is settled by the nature of the concept and not by reference to the nature of the subject's experiential state. When viewing circumstances as standard for the kind of observational judgment I'm making, then the true straight-off observational judgments I make settle which true perceptual statements of the form I see so-and-so I'm in a position to make. In circumstances which count as normal for the relevant concepts, the truth of the observational judgment is enough on its own to establish that that was what was seen. True judgments which in the circumstances I am entitled to make establish the description under which what is there to be seen is seen. A parallel point applies in the cases in which I wrongly believe that circumstances are such that I'm not in a position to make an observational judgment about colour, say, because I wrongly believe that the light is not standard. In these circumstances, I refrain from making a judgment of colour, which I may later realise I was, in fact, in a position to make. McDowell sees examples of this kind as forcing us to accept that there is a notion of seeing which does not involve endorsement of any observational judgment and is bringing to light the sense of visual experience in which visual experience can provide independent reasons to judge. He says, thus we see that an impression is something like an invitation to accept a proposition about the objective world. This, according to McDowell, is an invitation I may accept or reject, and if I reject it, I may realize later that it was not merely a matter of something's looking to have a certain colour, say green, but that I was seeing it to be green. The reference to seeing goes against the logical priority that I have argued the observational judgment has over a perceptual <coughs> statement. If we accept that logical, that logical priority, then what I realise in the above case is that I was in a position to make observational judgments about colour, and can therefore state that the object I saw not merely looked green, but was green. It's on that basis that I'm now in a position to say that I was seeing it to be green. Of course, it's true that prior to my being in a position to make this judgment, I was seeing a green object, not merely an object that looked green. However, this is merely to specify what might be called the material object of my seeing. The intentional object is given by the description under which I saw this green object, which was, before the realization that viewing conditions were normal, an object that looks green. It's this description which provides me both with reasons for action and for a judgment about what is there, what it is that I see, for it's the only fact that has so far come within my ken. It's only when I realize that I'm in a position to make the outright observational judgment that object is green, that the fact that it is green comes within my ken and becomes a potentially rational influence on my action and further judgments, including the judgment I was seeing it to be green. Okay, so I want now, finally, quickly, 
to turn to the second approach to the problem of my entitlement to straight-off observational judgments, the one I want to defend. This approach abandons the idea that experiential episodes are what lend our observational judgments whatever authority they possess, and aims to detach the question of our entitlement to these judgments from the issue of possession of a justification which guarantees them as correct. The idea is that we need to make clear the connection between a subject's ability to make straight-off observational judgments, confidently and without guidance, and the acquisition of the capacity to judge. If the capacity to judge is constituted in part, at least, by the ability to make observational judgments groundlessly, straight off, without hesitation or doubt, then the claim is, we should look for the source of the subject's entitlement to those judgments, not in something which grounds or justifies them, but in the authority which arises from his mastery of the concepts employed. This is to see the source of the entitlement to straight-off observational judgments in something quite distinct from that which entitles someone to a justified claim to know something, namely that he can state proper grounds for asserting what, the cla what he claims to be the case. In the case of straight-off observational judgments, the entitlement lies in the capacity of the judger, which form the background to his judging and which provides his observational judgments with an authority which derives not from his possessing a justification for what he asserts, but from his status as a master of the relevant concepts. As McDowell observes, the capacity to judge is something that human beings acquire through the sort of education which is typical for them. A child's acquisition of language, and hence the capacity to judge, is made in the context of its acquisition of the ability to take part in characteristic forms of human behaviour, eating, dressing, washing, playing, and so on. It's essential to this entire process of education that the child begins by trusting the adult. In the context of the process of initiation into these characteristic forms of human activity, the adult begins to teach the child judgments. This is your hand, this is a spoon, this is a ball, this is red and so on. And the child gradually learns to respond to objects unhesitatingly, not only by using them appropriately in the performance of tasks, but with the appropriate name or description. The acquisition of language, and hence the ability to judge, is based, in the first instance, on objects and properties being recognised and given their appropriate names over and over again. The test of the child's having mastered the concepts that the adult teaches him is his ability to go on and use the relevant expressions in ways that accord with those of his teacher, independently, without guidance, and without any hesitation or doubt. Coming to trust his own ability to judge without guidance from his teacher is essential to the child's acquisition of the capacity to judge. When the child develops the ability to react to the objects and events to which he is, by which he is confronted with the correct names or descriptions, as judged by his teachers, there's no question of his grounds for what he asserts. The truth of his judgments is a criterion of his having learned to judge. No question of how the child knows what he judges arises. The child's growing entitlement to make the true straight-off judgments he does, resides entirely in the authority deriving from his increasing mastery of the relevant concepts. In this way, the human capacity to judge does not have its roots in anything that might be called justifying judgments. In its primitive stages, the development of the capacity to judge does not involve questions of grounds for judgment. Rather, learning to judge is, in the first instance, developing an unhesitating ability to say correctly what something is. The idea is that this should help us to acknowledge that the logical priority of straight-off observational judgments and to accept that their status as confident and as unhesitating responses to the objects and events occurring in our environment. When our response is the manifestation of the acquired mastery of the relevant observational concepts and our judgments are true, then this brings the objects and events occurring in our environment within our ken in a way that allows us to treat them as reasons for action. 
What makes the immediate response of someone with conceptual capacities an exercise of rationality is not that he is in possession of an independent experiential warrant to which the judgment is a rational response, but that the capacities which are exercised in responding to the objects and events in his environment with the appropriate descriptions are ones which ground his ability to constitute anything as a reason for action or as a reason for making further judgments. It's the essential connection between the development of the capacity for straight-off observational judgments and becoming a theoretical or practical reasoner that qualifies the former as an aspect of reason. There's clearly a difference between the judgments of a mature human being and the reactions of a child who is learning to judge. A mature human being has mastered a conceptual repertoire that goes way beyond observational concepts and into which the latter are woven by an intricate network of conceptual connections. A mature human being is also a self-conscious judger who not only understands what he does as the expression of a judgment, but also grasps that the exercise of his capacity for making observational judgments depends upon certain conditions being met. If he has reasons to believe that these conditions are not met, then he knows that he must refrain from making straight-off observational judgments, which in normal conditions he understands himself to be entitled to make authoritatively in virtue of his mastery of the relevant concepts. So consider again the straight-off observational judgment which I'm now in a position to make. This is a desk. On the current approach, the correctness of my judgment itself constitutes a prima facie indication that I'm entitled to make it, not in the sense that I have proper grounds for it, but in the sense that I'm in a position authoritatively to make it. Clearly, correctness does not by itself entail entitlement in this latter sense, but all that's required to transform my prima facie entitlement into actual entitlement is that I have acquired the mastery of the concepts involved. Given that my judgment is correct, and given that I speak English, no further question of warrant for my judging as I do arises. The straight-off observational judgments that any particular subject is in a position warrantably in the sense of authoritatively to make will clearly vary with the background abilities that he brings to the context of judgment. Most human beings are able to use the names of a large number of people, places, buildings, monuments and other objects in describing what is there to be seen. There's also a large set of concepts which most human beings are masters of and are able to employ in immediate descriptions of what is there to be seen. What other conceptual abilities a subject is able to bring to bear in describing what's there to be seen will depend upon the degree to which they have mastered concepts associated with particular areas of expertise, and it will vary with individuals. Our, our ability to describe what is there to be seen is, of course, fallible. The world contains fakes and simulcra, soap shaped like lemons, chunks of wood shaped painted to look like apples, people who feign pain, resin made to look like bronze, and so on. And we are likely to be taken in by these. In these cases, where there is an intention to, to simulate, it seems right to say that the way the object appears has a face value, and that by taking its appearance at face value, I am led to make a false judgment. In this case, in these cases, someone sets out to exploit my mastery of the criteria for describing something, say, as a lemon, to bring it about that the concept is aptly employed in a description of what confronts me. In most cases, a closer look or further tests will reveal that the case is one of false appearance. But even then, the concept of a lemon, say, does not become irrelevant. Rather, it becomes part of a more complex description, which includes one of a class of qualifiers that denotes some form of simulation. Fake, counterfeit, feigned, imitation, pretend, artificial, bogus, sham, hoax, and so on. In some cases, the deception may be undetectable. However, it seems clear that all this shows is that I can be fooled by simulations, and this has no tendency to threaten the authoritative status of correct judgments made in normal contexts. 
Cases of simulation are, I want to argue, quite different from cases in which I misidentify or misdescribe what's there to be seen. In the latter cases, I take something, say the water running down the window, to be rain when it's water from a garden sprinkler. In this case, the idea of taking something at face value does not, I want to say, apply, since there's no intention to create an appearance of rain. It's rather that I see something, water running down a window, which is, in many circumstances, a criterion of rain. However, in the current circumstances, it's not a criterion of rain. The concept of rain is irrelevant to a description of what appears, that is, of what is visible before me. Of course, it's true to say that the water running down the window looks like rain, but then it looks like lots of other things too. Water from a hanging basket, water from dripping trees, uh, and so on. And these similarities may make it understandable how I came to make a particular misidentification. But insofar as it is a misidentification, it is a defective operation of my conceptual capacities. And this is shown by the fact that the discovery of the error leads not to an amendment of the original description, which still employs the relevant concept, but a complete withdrawal of it. I thought that was rain. I took that wrongly for rain, and so on. However, again, the fact that I'm not an infallible identifier of what it is that I confront does not imply that when I do, on the basis of a clear view in standard viewing conditions, identify correctly what is there to be seen, my identifications are not the authoritative exercise of my fallible conceptual abilities. And one final remark, going back to the other judgments which I'm in a position to make straight off. I want to end by returning briefly to these um, and seeing whether any light is shed on them by the kind of account of our entitlement to straight off observational judgments which I've just developed. The example I focused on is the only one in which the knowledge expressed in the statement is made on the basis of observation, that is, as a response to the visible world that I confront in perception. All the other examples are first-person present indicative statements, which although they may presuppose my having made an observational judgment, as in, I remember eating toast for breakfast, are not themselves made on the basis of observation or in response to an appearance. However, all the examples are distinctive insofar as my ability to say these kinds of things straight off is connected with my possession of capacities that are essential to my status as a theoretical and practical reasoner. The self-conscious capacity to perceive and to remember and the capacity for self-awareness both in respect of my bodily posture and movement and, respect, and in respect of what I am doing, thinking, intending, and so on, these are all essential to my being a theoretical and practical reasoner. Now, at least some of these capacities that are manifest in our ability to say these kinds of things straight off have their primitive analogues in creatures that lack conceptual abilities. The higher mammals, at least, have the capacity to perceive and remember, the capacity for bodily awareness, for voluntary movement and for intelligent directed actions in which any particular segment of behaviour can only be understood in relation to a whole series of voluntary movements which are directed towards a specific end. Animals manifest these capacities in meaningful, complex, voluntary behaviour that is responsive to the significance of the objects and events occurring in their environment. In the case of animals, there is clearly no question of epistemic justification. Their voluntary goal-directed behavior is a complex, spontaneous response which reveals both their goals and the significance that their perceived environment has for them. One of the central ideas of the account of observational judgments that I have developed is that we should see our ability to describe what we see as having its roots in our natural propensity for spontaneous, meaningful engagement with the objects and events occurring in our environment. When we learn to say what something is, or to describe what is there to be seen, justification and doubt are not in the picture. What is essential at the point where we acquire the abilities that are essential to our becoming theoretical and practical reasoners 
is that we learn to speak for ourselves spontaneously and without guidance. If we take this account of straight-off observational judgments as our model, then it suggests that we should not look to ground the non-observational first-person statements which are expressive of self-consciousness in something which justifies them. Our first-person present-tense indicative descriptions of our bodily posture, of our bodily movements, of our intentions for the future, of what we're thinking or of what we remember and so on, are also things we learn in specific circumstances to say straight off, spontaneously, without any further question of justification or of how we know arising. In the case of self-conscious bodily awareness, our development of these abilities has its roots in more primitive forms of self-awareness and capacities for motor control and voluntary behaviour, which predate our development of conceptual abilities. Acquiring the relevant conceptual capacities means learning to say spontaneously, not on the basis of observation and without guidance from others, what my bodily posture is, how I'm moving my limbs, what I'm doing, and so on. Instead of looking for a special way in which a subject is given to himself, or for a distinctive experience of intentional action, a distinctive feeling of control, or what it's like to have an intentional bodily movement from the inside, which grounds or justifies these first-person utterances, we should recognize that our capacity to state these things straight off is the form that bodily self-awareness and the capacity for goal-directed action takes in creatures who have acquired conceptual abilities. Similarly, we might look for our ability to give expression to what we think or intend or to what we feel as a matter of our acquiring techniques for the spontaneous expression of thoughts and feelings in which we simply speak for ourselves. We acquire the ability to make statements of these kinds in the course of developing certain characteristic human capacities in which our going on to say what we think or feel or intend independently and confidently without guidance in ways that accord with other things that we say and do is essential. Our entitlement to say these things does not on this approach derive from an experience which is the ground of our making them but from the authority which derives from our mastery of the relevant concepts in the context of the development of the kinds of know-how which characterizes normal human life. Rather than trying to construct accounts which show that we have a warrant for the relevant first-person utterances, we should look at the primitive roots of the capacities we develop and the context in which we develop them, we acquire them. Okay, the idea is that this will show that the question of justification and grounding have no application in these cases. As in the case of observational judgments, we need to be able to see why the straight-off nature of the statements does not mean that they are brute vocalizations which cannot be considered an exercise of rationality. Our first-person utterances are not grounded in anything, but as the exercise of our self-conscious ability to say what we think or intend or what we feel, they are essentially the performance of a rational being who understands his entitlement to say these things as residing in the authority that he possesses in speaking for himself on such matters, and questions of how he knows don't arise. Thank you. Sorry, it's been so long.